Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. There was a minister who noticed a group of boys gathered around a puppy. And um, he went over and said, what are you guys up to? He said, we're telling lies to each other. And whoever tells the biggest lie wins a dog. And the, little, the uh, minister kind of arched his back and looked very angry. And he said, that's horrible. When I was your age, I never even thought about telling a lie. And one little boy looked very disgusted as he said to his friends, I guess he wins the dog. <laughs> because of our nature to mar the truth, we have an elaborate legal system with courts and a million lawyers practicing law. Uh, typically, one puts the hand on the Bible. Do they still do this today? And they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And there are stiff penalties regarding perjury in a court of law. We even have lie detector tests to see if the brain activity is corresponding to what we are saying. It was Jesus who called Satan a liar and the father of lies. And of course, way back in the garden in the fall, since that time and onward, we've had this tough time maintaining the truth. Even David described our character in Psalm 58, saying, They go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies. Parents always are reeling their kids in. We never tell our kids, saying, You know, let me teach you how to lie. But telling them how to tell the truth, because we find that's human nature. A book was put out a few years ago called The Day America Told the Truth. I don't know whatever day that was, but the, the book was called that. And it was a book uh, of research done by Peter Kim and another New York City researcher. They claim to have the honest corner on the market when it comes to what Americans do and what they say and feel. According to their research, 90% of Americans admit to lying routinely. 36% say they tell really big lies regularly. According to the research, men lie more than women. Young men lie more than older men. The unemployed lie more than those with jobs. The poor lie more than the rich. And liberals lie more than conservatives. <laughs> You're happy about that. Interesting. Americans lie most to parents, friends, and siblings. Same research says we lie least to doctors, accountants, clergymen, and lawyers. We know we need them. What we just read is uh, fourth in the sixth set of illustrations that Jesus gives of chapter 5, verse 20. 
what he said back there was, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. Then he gives a list of illustrations. And this is the fourth. And uh, we're going to look at three things from our text, three uh, truths that are highlighted about our words. Number one, the problem with integrity. Verse 33, we'll look at that first. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Oaths came about upon the recognition of human character to mar the truth. We felt at some point along the line historically that we need some guarantee, some reinforcement, something to buttress a promise that we would say. Man is inclined to be less than honest, and an oath would give more strength or incentive to tell the truth. In ancient times, oaths were straightforward. Usually they were merely verbally spoken. You would just say them in the presence of a couple of witnesses. And the idea is that I'm making myself publicly accountable by saying this oath verbally out loud in front of witnesses. Sometimes the oath would be accompanied by raising the hand or both hands to the sky and invoking the name of the monarch who was ever reigning at that time. Today, vows Oaths, contracts are written or spoken. Marriage vows have much the same idea. They're verbal so that you're publicly accountable. Um, We sign contracts based upon a marriage. We sign contracts when we buy cars or homes. In the Old Testament, there were oaths. And the idea in the Bible, in the Old Testament of an oath, was the emphasis on speaking honestly with the intention to perform what is spoken couple examples. Leviticus 19.12. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. And Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23:21 When you make a vow to the Lord your God you shall not delay to pay it for if the Lord for the Lord your God will surely require it of you and it would be a sin to you Abraham Jacob David Jonathan all of these men performed vows along those lines and even in the in the New Testament twice um, Paul uses the phrase God is my witness, calling himself into an oath. Even Jesus sort of hinted at this when he said, verily, verily, or most assuredly. And even further back than that, God himself in the Old Testament, God the Father placed himself under an oath sometimes. For instance, Genesis 22, he says, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Now, you might ask, well, why would God need to do that? After all, the Bible says God is not a man that he should lie. Well, God isn't giving an oath to bolster his credibility, but to bolster our faith in his credibility. We're the people that have the problem with unbelief. So he's condescending to our level, the level of human oath-taking, as to bolster our faith. 
Now, in the New Testament times, by the time that the Sermon on the Mount was spoken by Jesus, all sorts of fancy oaths had been developed. Um, Sometimes they would begin with a statement like, by your life, I promise such and such, or by my head, I promise this or that. Sort of like, remember being a kid and you'd say to somebody, when they'd make a promise, you'd say, cross your heart, hope to die, cross it twice. There were these elaborate means of taking oaths, and those means became more important than actually doing what you said. Also, oath-taking had become compartmentalized into two types of promises, some that were considered binding, others that were non-binding. A binding oath is whenever you would invoke the name of God in the oath. If you would take the name of God into the wording of your promise, that was absolute, that was binding. You could, however, take a lesser name or an object into your oath, and though it was important, it wasn't as binding. Uh, For instance, let me show you how they perverted the law back in those days. In Leviticus 19.12, which I just read, And you shall not swear by my name falsely, says the Lord. They looked at that and said, Okay, but I can swear by any other name falsely. So people would swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by the hairs on one's head, and that would be okay if you broke it just as long as you don't bring God's name into it. Just to show you how crazy it got, would you turn with me to uh, Matthew 23? Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking once again, and uh, this time he busts the religious people wide open. He basically says, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's what the paragraphs are filled with. He's, He's climbing all over their cases. For one thing or another, you'll see one of the things that fits what we're saying in just a moment. Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And... Whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So they're busted for making excuses for their lies. They made so many promises with no intention of keeping them. It was an outright lie, but they had an excuse. Four high school boys were afflicted with a grave disease called spring fever. And they decided that the only remedy was ditching the first part of school one day. So they were out of school until lunchtime. They came back. A test had been given in one of the classes. And uh, the teacher got them all in a classroom and uh, asked them what happened. They said, we had a flat tire. Okay. 
well, let's take your test. So they were sat down in four separate desks. And the teacher said, first question on the test, which tire was it that was flat? (laughs) She knew better. There is a problem with integrity. The second thing that this text surfaces is the perversion of credibility. Go back to Matthew 5 and look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. The issue here is credibility and things that undermine credibility. Words that you or I might say that would actually ruin credibility. Look at verse 37 where Jesus said, Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Credibility can be ruined by a number of things. Number one, by careless speech. By careless speech. That's really the point of verse 34, 35, and 36. Jesus is simply saying, you can't keep God out of any transaction, whether you swear by the temple or the one who dwells in the temple, whether you swear by the altar or the gift that is on the altar. You can't keep God out of a transaction. Why? Well, if you swear by heaven, that's his throne. You can swear by earth, that's his footstool. You could swear by... Uh, Jerusalem, that's his town. You swear by your head, that's his creation. God is involved in every transaction. An oath is an oath is an oath. Whether you make it to a client, whether you make it to a seller, or whether you make it to a spouse, it is a solemn oath. You cannot, I cannot, we cannot compartmentalize our life and say, well, this is how I am at church, but this is how I am outside of church. An oath is an oath. What are some examples of careless speech? Well, just like long, elaborate oaths were careless speech, sometimes Christians can become very verbose. Uh, We can even use spiritual words as filler words. We we can give really no thought to them. We can say things like, uh, well, praise the Lord. Well, hallelujah, glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. All great words. But sometimes not enter in fully to the meaning of them. Proverbs 10, we read, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. He who restrains his lips is wise. That's hard to do sometimes. Consider this. The Lord's Prayer contains 56 words. The Gettysburg Address, 266 words. The Ten Commandments, 297 words. The Declaration of Independence, 300 words. And a recent U.S. government order setting the price of cabbage, 26,911 words. Leave it to the government. Hey, the Bible commends... Words that are carefully chosen, doesn't it? Proverbs 25, 11. Words fitly spoken are like apples of gold in settings of silver. A basic principle to remember is this. A closed mouth gathers no feet. (laughs) We must be careful what we say and when. So credibility can be ruined by careless speech. 
Also, credibility can be ruined by exaggeration. You know what that is. Stretching the truth so far it doesn't even resemble the truth any longer. Like the boy that was caught lying and his mom wanted to impress severely upon him not to lie. And so she said, Do you know what happens to little boys who lie? The devil, tall, with fiery red eyes and two sharp horns, grabs them and carries them off to Mars at night. And they have to work in a dark canyon for 15 million years. Now, you won't tell another lie, will you? And the little boy said, No, Mom, you tell better ones. (laughs) We Americans are famous for hyperbole. We say things like, that weighs a ton, or I'll love you forever, or I'm starving to death. All all we mean by I'm starving to death normally is I haven't had breakfast yet. (laughs) It seems harmless, and often it is harmless. But every time we do that, we are devaluing speech and the meaning of the words. And I think testimonies can sometimes be like that. I've heard Christians give testimonies, and I've listened to them, and then I've heard them again and heard them a third time. And after a while, they're sort of like fish stories. You know, the fish grows every time it's told. And the testimony just sort of changes a little bit. It's getting better and bigger and more embellished. And You know, you might start off by saying, well, when I was in high school, I tried smoking a joint. And then later on, you hear the testimony and say, I had a really a big drug problem in high school, and God delivered me. Or maybe he tried a beer once or twice, and now he gives his testimony, I was an alcoholic, and God delivered me. Now, God needs to deliver you from lying. That's the truth. That's called exaggeration. C.S. Lewis said, a little lie is like a little pregnancy. It doesn't take long before everyone knows. Also, credibility can be ruined by flattery, buttering people up, false praise, appealing to their ego, but it's insincere. Listen to Proverbs 29, verse 5. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. You know, the word flattery in Hebrew literally means smooth. Our word in English, flattery, comes from the idea of the flat of one's hand, where you would stroke an animal to tame it. You're giving them strokes with the flat of the hand, causing that animal to tame down a bit, the caress. People who flatter other people usually do it because they notice something. The other people really like it and will treat them differently because of it. It's called manipulation. I can manipulate that person through flattery. There was a show on television years ago. Let's see how many remember Leave It to Beaver. Show of hands, be honest here. Ooh, we have an older audience here. Leave It to Beaver. I remember it. I used to watch it all the time. Do you remember Eddie Haskell? Mr. Flattery. Well, hello, Mrs. Cleaver. You look beautiful today. And, of course, Wally always said, Shut up, Eddie, because he knew the truth. He knew what this guy was all about. He was just flattering her. The book of Proverbs is filled with dangers about flattery. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7 talk about how a harlot catches a man by using flattery. 
Proverbs 14 talks about those who flatter the rich in order to get something from them. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he said, You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. Heard a story about the king of France, Louis XIV. He attended church one morning with his entire entourage. And he came into this church and he noticed that there weren't many people in it, just a few peasants, and there wasn't the large crowd that usually accompanies that service. The preacher, the minister, the court minister, was Archbishop Francois Fenelon. And he asked the archbishop, how come nobody's here this morning, thinking I'm here as the king? Fenelon said, I announced your majesty would not be here today because I wanted you to see who came just to flatter you and those who came to worship God. A lot of people had come just because that king would be there. Next, credibility can be ruined by pat answers. Pat answers to deep problems. What I mean is canned advice, shallow, surface statements that when people hear, because we've heard them so often, often accompanied with insincerity or ignorance, we want to recoil from them. I'll give you an example. A brother or sister is sick. And somebody walks up to him and says, if you had enough faith, you'd never have to be sick. A pat, lame thing to say. You're living a Satan-defeated life. Well, thank you very much. God bless you too. Or somebody dies in the family. And a well-meaning and maybe even sincere, but I would say misspoken Christian will walk up after the death and will say, well, praise God, it's all for the best. They're in a better place. That just minimizes the anguish and the pain they're feeling. May God deliver us from cliches and get us to think a little more deeply. Proverbs 15:28 tells us the heart of the righteous studies how to answer. Now, finally, look with me at verse uh, 34 and verse 37 together, at least portions of them. We've looked at the problem with integrity, the perversion of credibility, and the way this thing is capped off, this paragraph, is the practice of honesty. The practice of honesty. Verse 34, but I say to you, do not swear at all. And couple that with the 37th verse. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Allow me to read that to you in the New Living Translation. Verse 37, just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Your word is enough. To strengthen your promise with a vow shows that something is wrong. In other words, be such a man, such a woman of integrity and credibility that when you speak, they know it's honesty. You don't need to reinforce or add a crutch to what you're saying. By the way, verse 34, where it says, do not swear at all, Jesus isn't talking about cussing. I think you realize that, right? That would go without saying. It's not cursing. The idea is make no oath at all. The Quakers, in reading this verse, 
took that to mean you can't even be in a court of law and make an oath to tell the truth. I think that's stretching it a bit. I think it's a little legalistic. After all, Jesus allowed himself to be placed under an oath, didn't he? The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, or I call you into an oath by the living God. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, it is as you say, entering into that solemn oath. What what he's speaking about is against the flippancy of an oath, where your word isn't worth much. And you make a flippant statement. Peter Kuzmik said, A credible message needs a credible messenger because charisma without character is catastrophe. Isn't that good? Charisma without character is catastrophe. A promise is a holy thing. Even a little promise like, I'll pray for you. Will you? Because if you say that, then pray for them. You know, whenever I tell somebody I'll pray for them, I do it one of two ways. Either as soon as I walk away from them, I'm praying for them because I know I'll forget otherwise. Or I'll say, let's pray right now together. Let's enter into a time of uh, coming before the Lord. Here's another promise. I do. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I do. Promise is a holy thing. Folks, if the Marines can use the motto, Semper Fidelis, always faithful, certainly God's soldiers ought to be able to say, I'm always faithful. I want to close by telling you about a word you're familiar with, but I want to tell you the origin of it. It's the word sincere. We know what that means usually. Somebody's sincere versus somebody who's insincere. But let me tell you the background of the word. The English word sincere comes from two Latin words put together. Sin or seen without Sarah, wax. So when you say, I'm a sincere person, quite literally you're saying, I'm without wax. And now you're thinking, and where exactly are you going with this, Skip? Let me explain how the word came about. Years ago, hundreds, actually a couple thousand years ago, when statues and statuettes, figurines were made uh, and presented to people on special occasions, they were either made out of marble or fine porcelain, care was given into how those things were fired in the oven because if you didn't fire them the right way, the right kind of heat at the right amount of time, those things would crack. And if they cracked all of the work And all of the money that you spent for that thing would be wasted. Somebody with integrity would throw it away once it's cracked. But there were dealers who would take the cracked statues, figurines, and take wax, mingle porcelain or marble dust into them so it would look very much like the texture of the marble or the porcelain and rub it in the cracks and the holes and present it or sell it. Imagine how frustrating... It's the husband's uh, 30th, 40th, 50th birthday. And the wife buys a nice statue of him and brings everybody together in the backyard for a party. Punch is served, and there's the statue, and it's uh, under a veil. At the right time, she says, happy birthday, honey, rips the veil off. It's this beautiful marble statue of him. 
but it's out in the hot sun, so in 20 minutes, the wax starts to melt, and his eye starts drooping down to his chest. It'd be awfully embarrassing. What happened? There was a crooked guy who sold them the statue with wax in it. So merchants who were trustworthy, who were worth their salt, who were honest, would display what they made with a sign that said, Sincera, without wax, unmarred, authentic. And I know and trust that we know that's how God wants our speech and our lives to be, without wax, sincere, authentic. That must begin with a commitment to Christ that is authentic, sincere. The band was talking about growing up in a religious home and singing songs and going to church, and that can happen on a number of levels where a true commitment hasn't been made to Christ. It's really not sincere. It's really not without wax. And when the fiery trials come, you can see it. See it. See it. 